Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram. I love that movie podcast. And you can support us on Patreon. As you know, this show is free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at patreon.com slash I love that movie. If you do support us, you get swag, you get, you know, an extra bonus episode weekly of my thoughts of all the stuff I'm watching that week, which is mostly DC stuff. So if you're really into DC, it's <laughs> a bonus set for that. Uh, I want to thank my top patrons, Chris Balga, Jeff Widman, Michael Cross, and Philip Barker. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. And thank you to everybody that contributes. Um, I've also got a Teespring if you want any I Love That Movie swag. We've got a Discord, a Facebook group. And I've also partnered up with Get Vocal. So I will be doing weekly after party shows. So every Friday, I'll sign on to Get Vocal and we'll do a live podcast. And I'll basically just answer all your feedback from the past week. Um, so, you know, check out the link in the show notes. I'm going to make F, uh, Facebook invites and things like that. So that's going to be really fun. And then I get to interact with you guys live. It'll kind of replace our weekly watches or con panels for now there's not going to be any panels in the future for at least in the near future so this will kind of be that it'll be a little after party join us in there on fridays at 8 p.m central all right and the last thing i want to plug is of course our website i love that movie podcast.com so if you're having trouble finding a place to stream or want to direct someone to a website it's there um i want to go ahead and introduce now a returning guest to the show I've got Gordon K. Smith back. Say hi, Gordon. Hi. Hey. Um, Gordon, uh, you have been on the show a couple of times. You were on one of our live episodes with your uh, feedback. And I remember Michael Cross was like, man, I like Gordon. You need to have him on the show. <laughs> and so we did an episode together, too. Uh, it was for E.T. 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 That's right. Yeah. So you were on for the E.T. episode. And uh, it was awesome. <laughs> we got to hear a lot about E.T., also your time at Blockbuster, which is a really yeah. fun story. I love hearing about that. But in case you guys are tuning in new this week, my guest always picks the movie. So, Gordon, what movie did you select this time? Uh, the 1951 original version of The Day the Earth Stood Still. The good version. <laughs> good one, yeah. Um, oh, and Gordon, really quick, uh, in case somebody hasn't heard that last episode, why don't you introduce yourself real fast? Uh, oh, a little uh, uh, self-bio? Yep. <laughs> uh, okay. I am a um, writer, uh, filmmaker, editor, researcher, 
I have worked in many aspects of film and television, everything from acting to editing to publicity, uh, just about everything I've done once. Um, I've been an extra or a bit player in over 50 movies and TV shows. Um, that is awesome. <laughs> notably the Alamo, the 2004 version of the oh. Alamo. Um, and I had a, uh, I had a cameo in Don't Look in the Basement Part 2. Um, and uh, graduate of Texas Tech University I was one of the first and longest employees of Blockbuster Uh, I'm the guy who wrote all those little blurbs among many things I did for them over 16 years I wrote all those little blurbs on the back of the VHS boxes those are much appreciated and didn't you write some for Netflix too I did write for Netflix for a while after I was gone from Blockbuster, and, and some of that I was regurgitating the same stuff I wrote for Blockbuster and I was writing it for that <laughs> Netflix website. Netflix is a little... At the time, they were hiring uh, freelance writers around the country. I guess they stopped doing that. Yeah. That ended kind of abruptly, although I'm thinking of hitting them back up for it again because... Uh, could use some extra gigs right now. I, I bet. Um, so, Gordon, the day the Earth stood still, and, you know, I just want to remind everybody, as I've been doing now every episode, these are not spoiler-free. No. So if you've not seen this yet, please, you know, go watch this movie first. Um, and, I, and I'm going to read the synopsis of it really quick. Um, I assume a lot of you that are tuning in have probably seen this movie before. But in case you haven't, again, go watch it first. But here is my synopsis. Uh, When a UFO lands in Washington, D.C., bearing a message for Earth's leaders, all of humanity stands still. Klaatu has come on behalf of an alien life who has been watching Cold War-era nuclear proliferation on Earth. But it is Klaatu's soft-spoken robot, Gort, that presents a more immediate threat to onlookers. A single mother and her son teach the world about peace and tolerance in this moral fable, ousting the tanks and soldiers that greet the aliens' arrival. Good. Yeah. I got that Mm -hmm. off of, uh, I think, Wikipedia, (laughs) where I get a lot of them. I said my synopsis, but I didn't write it. Uh, It's just the one that I liked. Um, Gordon, what what is your experience with this movie? Like, when did you first see it? Well, there's actually a very definite answer to that. And... uh, and it, I have since learned it is a shared experience with nerds my age, with baby oh. boomer nerds, in that <laughs> it was shown on the NBC Saturday night at the movies in the early 1960s. And that's where I saw it. And a whole lot of people I know first saw it there. That's great. I was a little kid of uh, <clears throat> years old. And, um <laughs> Joe Dante, the uh, cult director, has talked a lot about that, seeing it. I think it was a shared experience that a lot of people my age, that's where we saw it. We never forgot it. It was We were just transfixed for two hours watching this movie that was already 10 years old by that time, 11 years old, uh, on the NBC Saturday Night at the Movies. I remember it to this day. And uh, was the incentive for a whole lot of us to get into movie making or TV or just a lifelong love of science fiction. And I will say uh, 
for the longest time, my, my fellow serious science fiction enthusiasts hated the use of the word sci-fi. Oh, really? Tell me about that. A cheapening, uh, <laughs> supposedly a word invented by Forey Ackerman, the, the famous uh, sci-fi publisher. I think people kind of threw in the towel on that. They they thought it was a kind of a, a, a cheapening of the term science fiction. Uh, but I, I think it's widely accepted now, so I even use it. <laughs> You'll probably use it in this in this discussion. So, uh, yeah, I think it was a huge influence on a lot of people to get a, get more into science fiction, and uh, for some of us to actually do some work on it in the field. That's wonderful. Then I didn't see it again for a long time. I think. Probably I was on the film programming board at Texas Tech. I think we showed it there. Um, I know that in, um, you know, uh, 1991, I, I think it's a movie a lot of people have seen bits of on TV over the years and need to sit down and watch it beginning to end. Uh I hadn't, having not seen it in many years in 1991, when I was working for Blockbuster in Fort Lauderdale, and I was also involved with the Fort Lauderdale Film Festival, I sponsored a 40th anniversary screening of it. And uh, I actually tried to get Patricia Neal, the star, to put in an appearance. And I, through some connections, got the phone number for her administrative assistant. So I called that number and Patricia Neal picked up the phone. Wow. And for five seconds about, I talked to Patricia Neal and I was just awestruck. And she said, oh, yes. Well, let me give you to my administrative assistant, Jane here. Jane, please talk to this man. That's my Patricia Neal invitation. And I was <laughs> just like, duh. Uh. And uh, unfortunately, she was not able to to be there for it, but. We got a 35 millimeter print from Fox and it went over real well. And I still have the trailer they gave us, a 35 millimeter trailer for it. I still have it <laughs> to this day. And we showed it in uh, fall of, of 1991. Uh, it did come out on VHS. Um, I got to see it on a really big screen. Thanks to uh, Chris Wagner, the former uh, film critic uh, in, in Dallas culture critic did a series on science fiction a few years ago and we got to see it on a huge screen at the look cinemas and it was just awesome to see it that way i just wow i just loved every second of it and i I think it has qualities a lot of filmmakers could stand to uh learn even today there's um, a lot i love about it that there's different ways to interpret it uh it's it's a non-violent uh, or at least with a philosophy of nonviolence in a in a in a in a really odd way too. When you get to the end of it, and yeah. It's one thing I love about science fiction in the fifties. Martin Scorsese has talked about this that under the 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 uh, burden of McCarthyism in the fifties, most movies could not address that directly, except to be on the McCarthyist side. When studios were studio heads were having to sign loyalty oaths and and have their employees and actors sign loyalty oaths, but through science fiction and westerns, 
they were able to do a lot of symbolic uh, study of that whole situation in ways they couldn't have done, done directly. That's why uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, another one we should talk about sometime, is also very tied in with the McCarthyist era. The original of that one as well. Uh, and uh, 1951, the year it came out, was this incredible turning point in, in cinematic science fiction because it was the first year that aliens were presented um, as as characters other than something in a silly serial of the 40s, you know, radar men from the moon or something. And earlier that year, so we had both the the models of good and bad aliens in 1951. Now, technically, the first movie to seriously have an alien is The Man from Planet X in 1950, which was a small B movie, but in 1951, they had two major, for the first time, major budget treatments of science fiction. The earlier one in the year being The Thing from Another World, Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World, usually shortened to just The Thing, which was the first evil alien invader, and which has been endlessly imitated to this day. That was in April of 51, and then in September of 51, it's Day of the Earth Stood Still, which has a benevolent alien. And that, that's amazing to me that within, you know, six months, we had these two seminal science fiction classics that set standards still being copied to this day. Yeah, I think that, uh, that that's so true. And, you know, I, I think that that's really interesting how sometimes some years become like a hallmark year. And it's like those movies weren't necessarily like, you know, like you're saying, like copying each other or anything. It's just that was in the general pop culture consciousness or something that kind of willed that into existence. And I think too, like um, Patricia Neal, didn't she at first not want to do the movie because she thought it was going to be really silly and then was surprised at like the response the film got? Yeah. Um, she was under, under contract to Fox studios. She'd already made some important movies like the Fountainhead and they wanted her to appear in this one. I used to have a press book for it, or I, someone else had one that I was reading that described Day of the Earth Stood Still as the first A treatment of a science fiction story, but Howard Hawks movie would, would try to make a claim on that too. Uh, and she didn't really want to do it, but she was under contract. And in those days, you did what they told you to. The, the contract system still existed for a while, even though the, the late great Olivia de Havilland, who we just lost, did a lot to uh, to... Uh, stop that system or limit that system. And supposedly she said that uh, she just thought it was one more sci-fi movie off the, off the rack. You know, they, the sightings of flying saucers had started in the late forties from about 1947 and it was in pop culture, but it had just started becoming in movies at that point. And that, uh, even I, like, boy, within 5051, in the, in the craft that Klaatu uh, arrives on Earth in is a, is a flying saucer. So supposedly she, she said she had a hard time keeping a straight face, delivering some of her lines, thought it was silly, and later realized that that and maybe one or two others were the movies for the next 50 years, 60 years that people remembered her for. 
That's so interesting. <laughs> and agreed that it was a classic. Now here's a here's a nice footnote. Uh, four year, three years later, she did a much lesser known uh, British ripoff of Day the Earth Stood Still called Stranger from Venus, and she's in that too. <laughs> from 1954, which is mostly just played out in a few rooms and made much cheaper than Day the Earth Stood Still, but it's in the public domain. It's undoubtedly on YouTube. I'd, I'd watch it. Uh, it's one of several knockoffs, even in the 50s, that there was, because uh, there was a later one. There's one later in the decade starring John Carradine called Cosmic Man, which is pretty much another ripoff. And then, um, you know, plot for many, many television episodes. Um, the um, As we know, there was a big budget remake in 2008 with Keanu Reeves, which, as I was telling you earlier, I thought it, its greatest accomplishment was making Keanu Reeves seem even more stoic and dull than he usually is. <laughs> I I meant we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Yeah. My husband had to remind me that I had seen that. And I went, uh, what are you talking about? And he described it to me. And I went, I don't remember this at all. And then I went and looked up the poster and I went, I do remember this now. Like when I saw the poster, it clicked. But like I deleted that movie from my memory banks. I, I don't remember seeing it at all, which is not a good sign usually. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was uh, well in that version they make Gort like the size of King Kong, the mm -hmm. uh, giant robot. Um, and what they what they do with the um, some of their additions were that it's revealed that there's been other aliens living on Earth for many years. And also what they did at the end pertaining to the title Day the Earth Stood Still is is very different than what it means in the 1951 film. So that's kind of kind of interesting. And they had more budget to do, which I'll talk about some things that obviously the 51 version just didn't have the budget to show, just didn't mm. have the ability some details about how Klaatu escapes from this military, uh, sup supposed military, uh, you know, detainment, which is, is done very quickly in the original film. Uh, it, the original film has definite, definite budget, uh, ish, budget limitations, although it was for its time, it was a major budget treatment. Um, yeah. We'll talk some more about that. There are things you have to kind of take with a grain of salt like that. Washington in 1951 would just let a flying saucer land on the green without trying to shoot it out of the sky first. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. When everybody's well, <laughs> fearing nuclear war at any minute, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, well, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that um, when I have you on the show, I feel like it is nonstop um, facts. <laughs> so I'm going to throw in my three quick facts okay. really fast. Right. And then we'll get back to your facts because they're usually more studied, more knowledgeable than mine. Um, the ones that I have, one of them that I really liked was that according to Danny Elfman, Bernard Herrmann's score inspired him to become a composer. And I feel like you can really feel that in this movie. It reminds me of like, you know, Mars Attacks. Uh, yeah, uh, Danny, uh, uh, Danny Elfman. Yes, definitely, you could see the influence. Bernard Herrmann's score 
for Day of the Earth Stood Still, to me, it's like one of the 10 greatest scores ever made. It's an awesomely beautiful score. It starts from the first frame of the credits, goes to the end. And once you see the film, you'll realize you have heard it a lot because it was yes. constantly reused. He should have won the Oscar for that. He wasn't even nominated, but it was to this day, it's still being used that score for commercials, for spoofs. Erwin uh, Allen, uh, the, the producer of Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, uh, he, he reused uh, that music many times in his TV shows in Voyage, on Lost in Space, on the Time Tunnel. He reused the footage of the saucer on Voyage, and, and other shows used it too. The Earth versus the Flying Saucer used some of the shots from, five years later, used some of the shots from Day of the Earth Stood Still. But yeah, watch any, uh, watch any of Irwin Allen's shows, you'll hear that music. And it was mm -hmm. one of the, not the first, but one of the greatest ever uses of the theremin. That yes. wonderful instrument, which I got to play once. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, more facts. Okay, second fact. Uh, and this one is really thinking, uh, I, I picked this one with you in mind. Klaatu adopts the name Carpenter while hiding from the authorities. Robert Wise in a none too subtle nod to the film's intentional Christ allegory. And I know how you like your Christ allegories because we talked about that on E.T. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you want to get into that now? Sure, sure. Um, I was going to save that for later, but we could talk about <laughs> it now. Uh, now that I know you got off, uh, you got off YouTube, and the only the only thing I question about that is I have read, I don't think it was Wise's idea. Okay. I have read that, although I find it hard to believe Wise didn't didn't acknowledge any Christ symbolism in it. I think it's even more overt than it was in ET. And, Agreed. And in Cool Hand Luke and some other movies with very overt Christ symbolism. I mean, here, here's the rundown. Uh, and this may be due to the screenwriter Edmund North, who was a World War II veteran, was famous mm -hmm. for writing World War II screenplays, later TV shows. He won the Oscar along with Francis Ford Coppola for writing the screenplay to Patton. So the same guy wow. who wrote Patton wrote Day of the Earth Stood Still, and who I think became something of a pacifist in his later years. Uh, first, you have someone who lands from the sky and uh, has a guardian angel in the form of Gort, the robot, who is in daily, the, in the original film is seven feet tall. He was played by a guy named Locke Martin, who was the doorman at Grauman's Chinese and could barely move in that suit and could only wear it for a half hour at a time and could barely walk in it. So uh, if you watch close when he's walking around with uh, with uh, uh, Pat Neal, it's a dummy. It's a lightweight dummy of Patricia Neal. And he is, uh, he is wounded. Klaatu is wounded after, uh, by an impetuous soldier there. The, the, the army was played by the National Guard. The army refused to be in the film. So Robert Weiss got the National Guard to do it. Uh, he is, he's taken uh, prisoner by the uh, military establishment, but escapes. Klaatu does. Not, and, and we're never told how he did it either. He's just suddenly gone. It's like. I literally looked up and I was like, wait a minute. Because like 
if I'm honest with you, when I watch these, especially when I'm doing them for the show, I tweet like I'm watching it. I write on Facebook, I'm watching it. And so like I'm paying attention, but sometimes I kind of have to look down at my phone. And so like I look up and he's escaped and I went, he escaped? And Nick goes, yeah. And I go, did we see how he escaped? Oh, no. He's like, no. And I went, okay, I'm just making sure that I didn't miss anything. Yeah. I had forgotten about that. I've I totally mean, seen this movie oh, before, yeah. but it's I been think, years. I think budgetary <laughs> limitations, perhaps it's, it's you know, you, you find a certain naivete again, maybe due to budget limitations that, they, you know, a guy comes from another planet. He just walks out of a hospital room like, really? <laughs> I mean, there's not like a giant army surrounding everything. And uh, it's never explained how he got out. Now, something I read did say that there was scenes cut that explained that some more and that were shot and and co- cut from the final print that explained that. Maybe explain also explained a little odd thing that a newscast later on says we're looking for the spaceman, but we don't have a clear picture of him. And you go, wait a minute. Lots of people saw his face before he escaped. So that that's, that's never quite explained. But anyway, he decides to um, discover how the, the regular folks live. Almost Frank Capra, it almost turns into Mr. Smith goes to Washington in a way. Uh, so he winds up in a boarding house with his family run by Francis Bavier, who is Aunt B on the, on the you know the Andy Griffith show later on oh my gosh you know growing up we called I have an aunt named B and I called her aunt B because of that show right (laughs) aunt B and it's Patricia Neal as uh, the mother uh, living there and her son Bobby is played by Billy Gray he was on father knows best for many years after that and when they ask him his name yes he says Mr. Carpenter gee uh, what could that be a reference to and in fact, I think they even say his initials are JC somewhere in it, like it's James Carpenter or something. And among the things he does, he, he walks around Washington getting to know uh, about the American government with, with Bobby. And there is in the, uh, the New Testament a um, passage about Christ at the age of 12. I think most scholars agree he's about the age of 12 meeting with Jewish elders and astounding them with his knowledge. So what does Mr. Carpenter do? He meets with a Jewish elder played by Sam Jaffe, who's like the world's, who's, who's like the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson of 1951, the world's leading physicist, who's got a blackboard full of uh, physics equations, which I have read were, were real equations. They weren't just malarkey. And, and he astounds Sam Jaffe with his knowledge hmm. of another world. And um, he uh, later, you know, to the analogy, the Christ analogy goes on and on. But later on, the military, of course, find out that he's still in Washington. They decide he's a troublemaker up to no good. So they uh, capture him and Patricia Neal in a taxi. And as he's jumping out, he's shot. He's killed. They put his body in a tomb. The military <laughs> puts his body in a tomb, and his guardian angel Gord. By the way, the last the last time I saw it, I realized the name Gord is only said twice in the entire movie, and it's not. Mm. Everybody knows that that guy's named Gord, <laughs> which in the uh, uh, Harry Bates original short story, Farewell to the Master, his name is Gnut. 
<laughs> but they um they changed it to Gort. I'm glad they did. Uh he uh shows up at the tomb and basically as the angel did in the New Testament and the Gospels, rolls the stone away. He cuts a hole in the shape of a round stone in the tomb and takes Michael Rennie, the great Michael Rennie. We'll talk about him later. Uh, and I can only think it was due to budgetary limitations that this seven-foot robot could walk up to this jail cell, cut a cut a hole in the wall, and take Michael Rennie out of it and just walk back to the spaceship, and nobody seems to notice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, budgetary limitations. I, I also love how the... Um, the spaceship is just surrounded by a corrugated uh, wood fence and two soldiers most of the time. Budgetary, once again, budgetary limitations, I think. And I'll tell you something very interesting about those two centuries, I'll tell you later. So Gort takes him back to the flying saucer, uh, resurrects him. And uh, in the original script, Klaatu uh, was going to be resurrected permanently, brought back to life. And the censors, the Hayes office, wouldn't let him do that script mm. one. I think they, you know, some of them thought it was blasphemous. Some of them thought it was politically outrageous for a bunch of reasons. So the, the compromise they had to come to with them was, okay, he'll just be brought back to life for a couple of hours. In this really beautiful wordless sequence, there's a couple of sequences that are like out of classic silent film directed by the great Robert Weiss, who I got to meet once. And uh, he is resurrected and, and they forced him to put a line in there where he says something like, no, this is only temporary. Only the great spirit can restore life or something like that. To make the 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 Hayes, the censors happy with that, so uh, basically, apparently, just long enough for him to make the speech at the end, in front of his disciples. His disciples being Patricia Neal, being the kid, being all these people who surrounded, who have surrounded the flying saucer at the end, like they did when he showed up at the beginning. Let me point out too. Uh, thank you to Robert Wise. It's a very racially diverse crowd. I was going to say that. I found that very interesting because, I mean, I mean, they do kind of stress that he's supposed to meet like world leaders yeah. and things like that. But I but still, they went out of their way they to like not, not just put a couple people. Right. And you won't see that in a lot of 50s, very few actually, 50, 50s sci-fi movies, not too much later. Right. And basically, Klaatu then tells the crowd kind of a uh, second coming um rapture story saying uh look you guys need to stop fighting and be kind to each other because here's what's going to happen if you don't if you proceed with nuclear war you proceed with army versus army and the nations of this planet fighting and killing each other uh we're going to come back and blow you all the smithereens you're gonna your earth will be reduced to a burnt out cinder <laughs> As he says, uh, by Gort and other others like Gort, which is just this amazing thing that so uh, the subversive speech that they could have only done by science fiction in the guise of science fiction at the time. Uh, and I'm, I'm just astonished they were allowed to do that. 
I guess because it's a guy from another planet, not anyone representing any country. Um, at the beginning of the film, I'm sure, because as was the the fashion with a lot of sci-fi that lined up with the McCarthyist thought, was the aliens represent Russians? They represent communists, but not mm. not in this case. It's clear by the end. No, this is something quite different, and. You know, some people have thought, wait a minute, really? This ending is like, is is some kind of political uh, statement of its own saying, if you guys don't play nice, we'll come over and, and destroy you all. Uh, so, you know, it's your choice. And it, it, it's open to a lot of interesting interpretations. But he gets back into the saucer and he has an ascension like Christ did 40 days <laughs> after he was uh crucified and resurrected he rises up into the heaven and and there's more there's even more christian symbolism than that but that's that's the main parts and uh, absolutely fascinating to me i i screened it at uh uh i did a movie series with lovers lane united methodist church and i was going to screen that people were asking me uh not that we didn't just screen things to have fun we did but he said i want you guys to get some ideas of how religious symbolism has been in movies for a very long time. There's a, there's Christ symbolism in the grapes of wrath. It's in the novel and it's in the, uh, in John Ford's film. Uh, and I, I convinced a whole lot of people who came up to me later and they said, you're absolutely right. I just thought that was a cheesy sci-fi movie from the fifties. So, <laughs> well, it makes sense, right. To pull, you know, ideas from our experiences from history from religion from you know things that touchstones people understand and know and it just makes it that much easier to connect to the story um the last one that i had was you you actually already mentioned it but i'll just piggyback on it uh the screenplay was based on farewell to the master by harry bates and it was originally published in pulp magazine astounding science fiction which I wonder, so when I was a kid, I grew up, you know, in the 80s, and there was a lot of, there was stuff like, um, like Creepshow, and um, I can't remember the name of it now, but, like, there were a lot of, like, horror sci-fi shows that were sort of based on horror sci-fi comics. Yeah. And I wonder if these days like younger people have an awareness of that at all. Oh, tales from the crypt. Right. <laughs> Where a kid is literally reading a comic book. Um, when I was growing up, I was at least aware of that, even though there weren't as many comics like that anymore. And that wasn't like something that I read. I just think it's interesting that, you know, this is from something like that, a pulp magazine. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a short story or not necessarily, you know, a comic, but kind of similar in that vein. They start as, you know, short stories and then later we've got comics and then we've got movies. And I just, I don't know. I always like to think about that history because I wonder if it kind of gets lost on people today, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, a lot of the, the era of serious, serious, serious science fiction from the decade of the fifties from 50 to 60 or to the late fifties, at least a lot of those stories were based on novels and short stories and comics. Uh, you know, not always with credit either. A lot of, a lot mm -hmm. of Ray Bradbury was stolen. A lot of Richard Matheson was stolen. Uh, you know, the incredible shrinking man is based on a Richard Matheson novel. And we, I could easily do one on that, which, and with credit 
fortunately, a lot of times with credit and and um, as Daisy Erstead still is. And I did read that story once a long, long time ago. And I was just saying I, the, the short story, if I remember right, ends about where the with Klaatu more or less uh, at the part of the, the, the first section of the movie where Klaatu is shot by the army as he's trying to give them a symbol of peace. You remember, he's holding out this thing and they think it's a gun and they shoot him. And I, mm, I kind of like that. I think that's <laughs> where the short story ends, if I recall, because he's giving he's about to give them the cure to all disease or something like that, which is a, a plot line that has been reused and ripped off many times. And oh, another uh, another one of the invitations of of Day the Earth Stood Still itself was by good old C. Thomas Howell uh, around the time of the two thousand and eight remake. He's he's been doing knock cheap knockoffs of big budget movies, and he did a version without credit to the film or the story called The Day the Earth Stopped, directed mm. video, which I'm sure is unwatchable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about the cast? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, let's go ahead and talk about the director next. You kind of touched on it already with uh, Robert Wise. And, um, you know, you have seen this guy's work before. I'm talking to the audience out there. I know you have. You've met him. Uh, But you've seen his work before because he directed West Side Story in 1961, The Sound of Music, one of my favorite movies ever, uh, The Andromeda Strain, and probably my favorite thing to mention, Star Trek The Motion Picture. (laughs) Not as well received, that one. (laughs) The man, his career covered every genre, every genre, and he just about made a masterpiece in every genre Mm -hmm. and uh, two Oscars for directing two musicals within five years of each other. It's crazy. And uh, several in the sci-fi genre uh, that became notable. Day of the Earth stood still, like you said, later the Andromeda strain, the first Star Trek feature and several other very notable films in there. The sand pebbles, uh, several things of a, you know, more of a noir quality. It's another great thing about Day of the Earth Stood Still is the noir look it has with the great black and white photography, cinematography. And I met him in 1998. Oh, wow. At the Fort Lauderdale Film Festival. And I'll tell you a quick story. I produced a little tribute video for him. And the festival that year did their award ceremony in a tent out on the beach. And unfortunately, um, decided to have the food and the booze come out first and then do the awards, (laughs) which you could never do. Uh, Bad idea. And so by the time Robert Wise got up to speak, everybody was drinking, drunk, eating and not paying any attention to what was happening at the front of the tent. Oh, no. It was very noisy. He actually went up there, grabbed the pulpit, and slammed it up and down several times and said, silence on my set. Silence, silence, no talking. I'm up here right now. (laughs) I love that. And I know the, the festival director very well. I still work for that festival. And he said, boy, I learned a lesson that day. Never do that. And I tell all the festivals I'm involved with doing videos for them, never do your awards 
and give out uh, uh, your awards and never do the, the most important part of your banquet after the food and booze come out. You do it before the food and booze comes out. Sage advice for yeah. sure. <laughs> or you wait, you get wait an hour and let everybody finish eating and drinking and then you do it. So right, right. I, I have been involved with some events who didn't follow that uh, advice and the same thing happened with them. Uh, <laughs> I shall name no names. Not not the Dallas Festival, but another group. Uh, <laughs> who else have I, uh, like I said, I got to talk to Patricia Neal for five seconds. Uh, I guess the surviving cast member now is Billy Gray. Uh, now, uh, Robert Weiss died about, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe. He's just a great, great director and and. Because he did so many different styles and genres, he's not remembered in the same way that Hitchcock or John Ford is. But he was yeah, that makes sense. It's like he didn't have like a brand, like like Kubrick or right. you know some other people. It's like he he really could do it all, and that 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 is interesting. That sometimes when directors can do that, it makes them almost less recognizable as a brand. Exactly, and it should be noted he was the editor of Citizen Kane, also. Oh wow! Oh yeah. So in the, the video that I did for him, I started it off with a clip from Citizen Kane. Uh, yeah, and of, uh, of Orson Welles' next movie, The Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, so some other notes on the cast is that Laura um, uh, Weiss got some real real-life newscasters of the time, like a guy named Drew Pearson, not related to the Drew Pearson we know of more recent years, uh, to play reporters in it. Now, there's in the famous scene, again, spo- uh, spoiler coming up, but there's there are two sentries who get uh, annihilated by Gort. Mm-hmm. When Gort melts down the big block of Lucite or whatever it is he's he's been trapped in, which is the only time you see Gort, Gort that you know for a fact that he killed anybody. Now he he melts down a tank in the opening scene, but the guy supposedly, you know, the crew jumps out of it. And that that scene kind of bothers some people because he just straight out kills them. But here's an interesting thing I discovered. I uh in 1993, I was at the uh video when I was in the home video business, every year they had a convention called the VSDA, Video Software Dealers Association Convention in Las Vegas. And I was there in 1993. It was always a huge, huge convention. A lot of stars were there selling their videos, sometimes, you know, uh, in conjunction with a studio. Well, Stuart Whitman, the actor Stuart Whitman, who just died earlier this year, had a booth. Mostly well known, better known for the Western TV shows that he did, but I had read somewhere that he was in the day the Earth stood still. So mm. I went up to him. I have a picture of myself talking to him about this, and I asked him, um, "Where are you in the day the Earth stood still?" He said, "You remember the two centuries that get uh, vaporized by Gort?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, I'm one." And he said, you want to know who the other one was? I said, yeah, who? He said, James Dean. What? Really? Yeah. And a- ever since, I have been doing a lot of research on that. 
Hmm. It is not listed anywhere as an official role that James Dean played, but he has, Stuart Whitman, I, I learned, I, I looked, read up on it, having seen uh, the movie several more times in the last few years. He said that in numerous interviews. And I looked at, at Dean's career at the time. He was going back and forth from New York to L.A. around that time, 1951. He was doing work in both places. And the, most of the day the Earth is still was shot in, in Hollywood, not, not Washington. There was only some second unit work done in Washington. So it is entirely feasible. Now, both those, those the sentries are in silhouette. You cannot see the faces at all. Okay. So you can't look at it and go, oh, yeah, that guy's obviously James Dean. But right. the fact that it might be him, I think, is real interesting. And if yeah. you go online and just enter that, you'll see there is a lot of discussion on it. And oh. uh, I, I did see that he is uh, at apparently at one time it was even in the cast list of on IMDb, but I think they took him out. Maybe because uh, they couldn't verify it. They couldn't verify it. Now, maybe they have a new rule that they don't do it anymore, but they will. I have seen on IMDb in the cast list them say stuff like, okay, they'll list an actor and then in parentheses as being in a film and say rumored, rumored. Mm. Like he's rumored to be that, that he's in it. It's like, and I'm not making this, I'm not making this next one up that, You'll think I am, but I'm not. That James Woods was an extra in the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. And I, I, I'm not making that up. It's a real movie <laughs> from 1963. They 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 did it on Mystery Science Theater once. Oh wow! And there are all these stories about actors who, as an extra or something, were in a in a movie like that. So I don't Makes know. Sense. I don't know if we can ever prove it, but I think it's. It's fascinating idea that that might that the that James Dean might be one of the two centuries there in that scene. I love that. Uh, and well, let me look at my own notes here. What else did I want to mention? Um, oh yeah, some of the other people they thought of casting for Klaatu. Uh, Daryl Zanuck at Fox wanted a, a Spencer Tracy to play Klaatu. And they sent the script to Tracy, and he wanted to do it. But the producer, who is uh, Julian Blostein, was against the idea for the right reasons, I think, because then people would just be looking at Spencer Tracy, and, and it would become a Spencer Tracy vehicle. And it would be judged on Spencer Tracy being the star. And it would, it would distract from the themes of the film. And they did discuss Claude Rains for a while, who would have been at the time a pretty, a pretty obvious choice to play a, uh, a character like that. But the, the producer, Blaustein, wanted an unknown actor. And Fox had just uh, cast Michael Rennie, who is a strikingly, striking looking, very tall British actor and very... Uh, uh, exotic looking. He'd been in several British films and a couple of Fox films before that. And somebody mentioned him. I think Blostein, the producer, might have seen him. I think it's one of the great casting coups in, in film history that they gave gave that role to Michael Rennie. That, to me, that's up there with Christopher Reeve and Superman and 
and uh, Gal Gadot and Wonder Woman of casting an unknown <laughs> in a part who just made it live. Yeah. And yeah, he, he is really striking looking. Like you said, he's not like, I don't know, he's not like you're, he's not average looking. Um, he's de- he's handsome, but he's he's different, I think, because he's very thin, first of all. And he seems kind of tall and he just, there's just something mysterious about him, I guess. There is. I uh, remember some people, and I used to work the conventions, the sci-fi conventions of someone who was like obsessed with him and drew a lot of art of Michael Rennie in in various uh, fantasy and historical poses. And she said, she said, it's the only man I've ever seen whose eyebrows slant the same way at both the both ways at the same time <laughs> which kind of is true and and uh subsequent to that he was seen a lot he never played much of a lead role in a major hollywood film again but he was seen in supporting roles and all over tv in the 60s he was like on mm. every show and i think he was I think he he was on a two part episode of Lost in Space, playing a similar, very similar character. Yeah, he was on like a lot of westerns. Uh, caught every every show of the '60s, and died in the '70s, I believe. Mm-hmm. And not before doing some really some really bizarre sci fi and horror stuff in Mexico. If you look at his filmography. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, I know. God, he was in, and and he worked in the genre several more times. I think he was in like all the Irwin Allen shows. I think he was on Voyage. He was on Lost in Space. I think on the very first episode of the Time Tunnel, he played the uh, commander of the Titanic. He played mm. Captain Smith. So uh, he was very seen a lot ap- after that. I just uh, did something with a two-part Route 66 episode that he was in. So, yeah, I, I think it's a a great uh, a, a casting, one of the great casting coups right there was to have him play that part. An unknown actor with a, with a, a, a kind of a strange mystique to him. Um, what else is in my notes? Um, I think it fits very well in the in the in the uh, pantheon of '50s films. There's about six masterpieces of five or six masterpieces of science fiction in the '50s. I mean, that's one, The Thing, which came out earlier that year. When Worlds Collide came out that year too in '51. We have to mention Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We'd have to mention, of course. Forbidden Planet, which you did on a previous podcast. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, I just listened to it, by the way, and to to get in the mood to do this one, I really enjoyed it. I, oh, I, good. I think there's a few things they uh, they avoided on it. Where <laughs> you and I <laughs> you were about. talking about that, <laughs> like the uh, the incest subtext in Forbidden Planet that you know Doctor Morbius has whether he's conscious of it or not, some other motivations for creating this monster out of his head that destroys all of his, all of his competition, basically anyone um, uh, getting close to his daughter. 
Yeah, I was going to tell you the story. In 1983, I was talking to Anne Francis right here in Dallas, in fact, at, a, at a, the USA Film Festival, and she was at the Inwood Theater. And she was selling books, I think, for a religious publisher, if I remember right. Danny Perry's book on cult movies had just come out where he goes into that, that interpretation of Forbidden Planet. I think it's pretty obvious. I I mean, that's one of those, that's one of those things where, you know, of course he's picking a movie that he loves and I I really enjoy it too. I want to stress that, but it's definitely something I noticed watching it. Even like if he's in charge of like her clothes and they're really skimpy, like there's just a lot there that is questionable between him and his daughter. But I feel like that's also in the Tempest, right? I'm not the Shakespeare expert, but I would love to know if it is. Yeah, I you, feel you, like it is. You might I've think seen... old old dad would be willing to let her go with the astronauts and get off that planet and live the rest of her life around other people, but right. No, I I think uh, I think pops once kind of wants her to himself, and yeah, and well, she's the only other person there too, so that yeah. adds another layer of like weirdness to it. But yeah, I mean, he's super controlling. If you um, uh, if you remember, yeah, when he. Um, Morbius puts on the little mind uh, uh, device to, to demonstrate it to Leslie Nielsen. And what's the first thing that pops up? Altera does. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and Fred. Yeah, like, it's weird. And like, even the way the guys treat and interact with her, but you know, a lot of that's like, it was a long time ago, <laughs> yeah. but like all of it feels weird now. Cause you're like, man, this poor woman, like <laughs> you know, she doesn't really... Yeah, some of that was left over from standard war movie tropes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Marines or the Army, uh, they just kind of transferred that. They figure military guys will be the same, you know, centuries from now. The the thought of a, I guess at that point, the female astronaut didn't occur to them, but it wouldn't have have fit in the story real well. Uh, But I I was telling you, I I was in London in 19... 91 and they had a, a stage musical version of forbidden planet that was kind of in the in the style of rocky horror picture show and they even all the while i was watching it i went to see it and i was thinking how are they going to do the id monster picking the guy up they did it <laughs> <All three. laughs> they had this giant tentacles come down from the top of the stage and grab somebody and pull them up i swear they did it yeah that's uh, awesome because I'm such a, a, a fact-finding stickler, I had to point out that, um, and I and I love what your your guests talk of it. But Forbidden Planet didn't win the Oscar for special effects. The Ten Commandments did that year, mm. but if not for the Ten Commandments, I think it would have because the effect. Yeah. Well, in both films, the effects still hold up pretty good, pretty great, and uh, I think it's probably only a matter of time until somebody uh, does a. Maybe she tries to figure out a stage version of The Day the Earth Stood Still. I would like to see that. I would have liked to seen Forbidden Planet, too. Yeah, I do think they tried it on Broadway and it flopped. I don't know why it didn't It didn't go any farther. I think I, I still have the program book to it. They had a guy playing the robot. Um, you know, they make an opera out of everything now. They could make an opera out of The Day the Earth Stood Still. <laughs> Uh, in the, uh, uh, as you know, in the film, in the day the Earth stood still, the title refers to when uh, 
uh, Klaatu decides to demonstrate the power he has, which is a godlike power. What right. And reinforcing the, it's a miracle because there's really no scientific explanation for what he does. He stops all power on Earth, mm-hmm. which maybe And also budgetary, yeah. you know, consideration there as well, because that's easy to illustrate, right? Easy to illustrate, <laughs> exactly. Which, you know, trying to think of that happening in 2020 would just be nonsensical. Although right. that, that's what happens in the 2008 remake, except it happens at the very end for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love how th- that scene is set up, as you recall, with Michael Rennie and Patricia Neal in an elevator. And it's all it turns completely dark. It's another one of those like almost silent movie type things. Uh, like when the kid takes the flashlight and is able to... Uh, or, or Michael Rennie gets his flashlight and is able to signal just the right dots and dashes. Being an old Boy Scout myself, I have I appreciated that with a Boy Scout <laughs> flashlight to to uh, get Gord to come back to life. Uh, I think yeah, a matter of time before somebody figures out how to maybe do do a musical version of that of of Day of the Earth, Day of the Earth stood still, and. Uh, we should mention Hugh Marlowe in that movie too, as sort of Klaatu's competition for Patricia Neal, and he was starred in a lot of sci-fi movies, sci-fi and horror of the fifties, uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, particularly four years later, in which uh, you know he he tried to warn him about the aliens in uh, in Day of the Earth Stood Still. At the end of it, nobody listens to him, so. He has to fight them all in, in Earth versus the Earth versus the Flying Saucers. So, anyway, I recommend to anybody. Uh, fingers crossed when Alamo Draft House gets back online. I know. And start showing classic films on a big screen again. Go see. Uh, go see Day of the Earth Stood Still. There, you'll get uh, particularly get the the beauty of the of the uh, photography in it the which is shot like a silent film in blacks and grays and that of course we we almost forgot patricia neal's most famous line uh that klaatu tells her to go tell gort klaatu barada nikto nikto which yeah means among other things hey gort don't kill me uh, <laughs> Klaatu says, don't kill me and don't destroy Earth. He's got a plan. And God, that is, shows up to this day. Uh, it's prominently featured in Army of Darkness. I was going to say, which we did an episode on that too, but that's one of my favorite lines. And I mean, even though this is a serious movie and I really appreciate it, you can't help but say those words with a smile on your face because of Army of Darkness. Exactly, yeah. But God, it shows up on The Simpsons a lot. Mm-hmm. They, they, to this day, they keep making references of it. I also think it's pretty cool that in 1951 they developed an alien language. Exactly. Uh, I can't before think, Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of a movie before that that did that had an alien language and 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 even three words of it for um, for Day of the Earth stood still. And uh, like I said, go check out. Uh, Go check out Stranger from Venus online. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Stranger from Venus and the Cosmic Man with John Carradine. Just two of the many ripoffs. 
your your guests were at uh, for Forbidden Planet were talking about how how much the costumes and the the C fifty seven D flying saucer from Forbidden Planet got used on later TV all the time on Twilight Zone. Yeah, uh, and so did Day the Earth Stood Still. The shot of the saucer landing or taking off. Oh yeah, it's used at the beginning, and and the crowds running away from it. It's used at the beginning of one of the greatest episodes of The Outer Limits. Uh, the Architects of Fear uses that too in this very um, just really chilling way. That was a great series too. Yeah, I like the Outer Limits. You're talking about like the original one, right? Because there was that there was an '80s one too, yeah, not wasn't that, there? Not the crappy '90s <laughs> or '90s, yeah, made, yeah. A, a reboot out of Canada. There's not much about that series <laughs> that, that I liked. Yeah, no, I agree. Episodes of it. The the original, but it was produced by the same guy who produced the original series, mm. uh, which the first season of the original ser- series. And it only ran two seasons. But man, that was a double whammy on me as a kid because that show premiered around the same time as I saw that, as I saw Day the Earth Stood Still. Ah, so you got more of the spaceship. Oh, more. I was going to say too, we, we've kind of run through a, a lot of our facts and a lot of scenes, but what are some of your favorite scenes from the movie? From Day the Earth Stood Still, the opening? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene where, like I said, where. uh Michael Rennie gets Billy Gray's Boy Scout flashlight and revives, after they've tried everything else to revive Gort, and, and nobody, the army can't figure out how to revive him, or he, he supposedly is so heavy they can't move him. Yeah. And they have sealed him in this block of something that looks like Lucite. And uh, this long, wordless sequence where Rennie does what you know looks like morse code or something and and in the right order and uh gort wakes up burns his way out of the block kills the two guards Stuart whitman and james dean if i'm remembering everything in the right order that's how he does that's what happens and, it, it's kind of like he rebooted him i feel yeah, like he rebooted. <laughs> you, you got it you nailed it uh, <laughs> that whole resurrection scene the whole starting from when gort Rolls away the stone, lifts him out of the tomb, takes him back to the ship. That whole long wordless scene where Patricia Neal goes inside the ship and is beautifully designed on the inside. I just love that. It's like something out of a silent movie, like Metropolis. Yeah, it is. And also the the touch of like that sound that, that, that gets louder and louder yeah. and she like covers her ears. And I thought that's such a good way to convey like that it's such an intense scene because you're not seeing a lot. And it made me think about like how many scenes in the future that, that affected, you know, that do that same, I don't want to say gimmick because it's not really a gimmick, but the way that it's duplicated, you can, you can tell they pulled it from this one scene and they did it a bunch of times, maybe not with the same impact because this was like the first time, you know? Yeah. The sound effects, that were developed for that and also for War of the Worlds two years later, been constantly reused to this day, even mm-hmm. today. That, that, yeah, they become like sci-fi sounds, yeah. quote-unquote. Yeah. <laughs> Became the official sounds of science fiction of both <laughs> of those movies. And that, that, yeah, that whole sequence where uh, it's so dark 
shadowy patricia neal's just watching in yeah just awestruck and uh the uh you know gort the if you watch it carefully you can see that uh you never see him move more than uh about five steps at a time because it was real hard for lock martin to walk in that thing he could only wear it for a half hour at a time and once again, there's like a, a lightweight dummy of Michael Rennie that he's walking around with. And I just love that scene. It's something I wish more more modern filmmakers would could learn to work with light like that, light and shadow mm-hmm. and wordlessness, scenes scenes without all the dialogue and, and just even pacing. You know, it's not the attention deficit pacing we have so much now and things. That's so true. I I think I'm a big supporter of that. Like a lot of the movies that I enjoy, even modern ones, people will say are slow. But I think you need time to process stuff sometimes. I think that it's intentional when there's silence in a, in a moment because they're giving you time to take it all in yeah. and to to form your own interpretation sometimes too. But you're right. Nowadays, it's like the editing is just all these fast cutaways and let's get there really quickly. Um, and they, you know, it doesn't need to be that way. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's greater impact when it's not. Um, yeah, there is, one of this. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, there is a great story about at the very beginning, the whole opening sequence where Gort, you know, the guy shoots Klaatu and Gort takes revenge on the soldiers. That's all great, too. Great mm-hmm. work. The sound effect is great. Uh, something that gets people laughing now when they see it is when the people run away, the crowd runs away from the ship. It looks like sped up film for a few seconds. And it was. And the reason it is because Wise apparently could not get the people to react enough. You know, this is 1951, so telling them, like, this is a flying saucer and something awful just got off of it, something terrible is happening, I guess a little more than they could comprehend at the time. So (laughs) the extras were moving too slowly, so he sped the film up, and he felt bad about that. I've read about later Robert Wise felt bad about how that looked, but it it was the only way he could get him to move fast, you know, to run and run in terror. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't even process. notice that. I'm going to have to go back and look at that now. Oh yeah. It's, it's sped up. And I've been at some screenings where people laugh at that and go, why did it speed mm. it up like that? I mean, you you could tell he used as little of it as possible to, to get the feeling across. Right. Uh, but he had, but, but that's what he had to do. Yeah. I love that scene. I love the scene between him and Sam Jaffe. Uh, you know, the Jewish elder, Sam Jaffe, was blacklisted at the time. Oh, really? And the producer, Blastine, had to had to make a deal with Daryl Zanuck to use him because they were pretty much sworn not to use anybody, not to use any actors on the blacklist. Wow. And they, they had to kind of make an exception for Sam Jaffe for that scene. So I was going to say just a couple scenes that I really liked from the yeah. movie too. Um, so I like when there's the, uh, when, um, when Klaatu takes the little boy to the, to see the saucer, the kid's like, I want to see the saucer. He's like, all right, let's do it. So they go out there and the press is out there asking a bunch of questions. 
Um, and they're basically, I, there's a theme, I think, up until this point where, like, you know, you read the newspaper and it's very negative, like, oh, he's missing and he's dangerous and who knows what he could do. Like, imagine what he could do. And there's a scene even at the dinner table where the whole family or not just a family, but like the people that are living there, the you know, the landlord and all that. They're all just talking about, like, you know, their opinion, which is, you know, based on what they've seen on TV and what they're reading in the newspaper. And then that connects to this scene where they're interviewing people and Klaatu um, gives his opinion on like, well, maybe, you know, there's another side to this and maybe we're assigning motives where there's not. And the, the press guy's like, uh, thank you so much. And like goes <laughs> to the next person. And I, and it's, you know, when you talk about not censoring this movie, that's amazing that they let that slip in oh. there like sort of suggesting to the American people that, you know, maybe their view of everything is a right. little bit skewed. I, I thought that was really smart. That the press foments uh, <laughs> paranoia about others. About, yes, about, yes. Uh, you know, xenophobia and paranoia. Gee, we wouldn't know anything about that in today's climate, would we? Uh, seriously but yeah and so that kind of connects to like you said having that diverse cast too it just felt like there's that's not an accident um the other scene that i kind of liked was with the guy that klaatu is kind of um in you know in air quotes in competition with that's a i think tom stevens is the name of the character is that right Yeah. yeah hugh marlowe um that one scene where you know okay so patricia Neil's character is, is dating him and then he hints later that he's a little a little jealous like he's like oh you know you're spending a lot of time with him and you talk about him too much and she's kind of at that moment she's like that's weird like I haven't really like he just started boarding here and a lot's going on but then there's another scene where he really just like puts his foot down and then she tries to reason with him and says like this is bigger than like us and like this is really important um, we can't tattle on him because it has real world ramifications beyond you and me. And he's like, I don't care. And I feel like the look on her face is just really good. It, it's surprising to me that, you know, like you mentioned earlier, she wasn't that into yeah. it because I think she gives a really good performance because I feel like a little light bulb goes off in her head and she's just like, this guy, he's right. no good. <laughs> you know, you really turn on him in that moment because he's so selfish. He's so self-serving. The that... diamonds, you remember? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yep. And that Patricia too. Patricia Neal being the great actress that she is, even if she didn't care that much about the part, she was very professional and, and, and great in the role. And I've also always thought even in 1951, Hugh Marlowe's character, some of the kind of hits he drops earlier is sort of like, Really, you're you're letting this guy who just came out of nowhere hang around with your son? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I mentioned that to Nick last night. I said this is very 1950s yeah. <laughs> today. Nobody would ever let a complete stranger take yeah. their son all over the place, and then he's like, "Oh, is, he's my best friend." Spend all spend all day with him yeah. and uh, take him out to the uh, you know the green out in Washington D.C. and uh, yeah, that's. That feels there, weird yeah, today. There, there, <laughs> you can't do that. There's just a hint of that in some of Hugh Marlowe's rants, I think, about, well, think about what you're doing here. You know, they that's about as far as they could have said in 1951. But uh, True. Yeah, that, those are, oh, well-observed. Good observations on those scenes. <laughs> 
by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was going to say, from what I've read, just read today that apparently there were some was some more scenes shot in which the the romance between Klaatu and, and Patricia Neal is more obvious. Okay, yeah, because I did notice that even though there's sort of that tension, I mean, there's the scene where Klaatu's like, both of you have fun, and it feels like he's saying, like, not interested, not, that's not what's happening here. So I didn't know if there was ever supposed to be a, a relationship. I wonder if maybe the studios pushed for that, but then in the you know, final cut, they were like, doesn't really need it. And so they Maybe took it out. I, I, in a, in a, you know, a classic screenwriter trope, had they pursued that a, a little farther, it would be that Klaatu, among other things, now becomes the surrogate missing dad. Right. Because I feel like that's heavily hinted exactly. at since, you know, she is a widow. He died and... in a war hero. And mm-hmm. Klaatu is now, re- is, is stepping in to the, the missing dad slot. Yeah. Maybe they had to cut that out because he dies eventually. So it's like, that's double depressing. Maybe, maybe. If that son lost a dad and then a guy comes I'd, back I'd, and he dies. I'd it's love like, to okay, know why if it was just for time. If it was because maybe the idea of an earth woman falling in love with an alien was just a little too scandalous, little too scandalous <laughs> and bizarre. Uh, yeah. For 51. Uh, now, by the time they made uh, I Married a Monster from Outer Space in 1958, they totally explore that. An Earth woman, <laughs> that's a real movie, and not a bad one either, believe it or not. Oh, uh, let's check it out. Tom Tryon, and watch the trailer. Just pull up and watch the trailer on, on YouTube sometime. It's it's one of the great, <laughs> it's a hilarious trailer. Uh, nice. And I, I think that might have been the reason. That I would like... It's one of those things where you read about footage shot for something not used and you go, damn, I'd love to see that. Right. And the the runtime on this, it's only an hour and a half, right? Two minutes. Um, Yeah. Is that typical for this type of movie or is that a little short? No, that would have been typical for the time um, for for an A-budget movie of the time. That would have not, not been uncommon. I think... Forbidden Planet, I think, is about 97 minutes. Yeah, that which, sounds which, right. You know, would have been considered a, a feature length, particularly for a, for a genre movie. And they really only made a few big budget in the, in the 50s sci-fi movies. They, uh, they weren't all super hits. I think uh, Howard Hawks' film was a hit. I think Day of the Earth Stood Still was a pretty, was a decent hit. Even though it was, believe it or not, panned by Bosley Crowther, who was the critic for the New York Times and was just an old curmudgeon, apparently, who didn't like any fantasy subjects. And he panned it. I read his review <laughs> once. I thought, really? Boy, you were an old old curmudgeon. Yeah, I think sometimes that happens where, I mean, you said that it it changed the genre, right? And so sometimes it's hard to tell in the moment. Um, There's all these, you know, rules and, 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 you know, comparing it to other pop culture stuff. If something comes along and breaks all the rules, well, then that could be misinterpreted, I think. Yeah, those those two films of 1951, they would make a great devil bill sometime. Good alien, bad alien, good cop, bad cop. Uh, Man, can't wait to go back to the movie theater. (laughs) That better Howard, happen. Howard Hawks' version of the thing. Have you ever had anybody do that one? 
No, I, I, I've always wanted to at least cover, I, I'm, I'm trying to think, did we ever cover John Carpenter's The Thing? Oh, surely you, have. you have. I'm, I'm one of the few people who's not a huge fan of Carpenter's film. Yeah, oh, really? I'm not. And I could talk at length about it, but I won't do it now. <laughs> uh, I got <laughs> no to inter John Carp- interview John Carpenter about it once, and and the interview itself was very interesting. I'll put it that way. I interviewed him about that and Starman um, way back in 84. But uh, no, I uh, you can get someone else to talk about the, the Carpenter's version. Uh, and then, you know, God, they're, supposedly they're going to go back and do a new, uh, still another remake of it. Uh, oh, wow, really? You know, the one from the last 10 years called also called The Thing is technically a prequel to Carpenter's version. Although it has the same title, but it's a prequel. It ends where Carpenter's version begins. But someone unearthed those, all versions of that film are based on a 1939 short story called Who Goes There? And somebody found a a much longer version of the story under a different title, a novel, long novel version of that story that written by the same author at the time. And, and last I heard, yep, you know, round, round four, we're going to film oh that gosh. one too. Uh, hmm. I don't know how I, I feel about that. You know, <laughs> I mean, nothing yeah, I can do to about me, it. It's kind of like, Hey, enough already. Uh, right. Right. Um, were there any other scenes, uh, from day the earth stood still that we haven't touched on? Well, all the, uh, all the major ones. Um, I like the, I I like the scene in the cab with Klaatu and and Patricia Neal, Michael Rennie and Patricia Neal also, which I believe is the first time he says Gort. I think he only says it twice. It's suddenly Mm. like. Everybody knows who Gord that. is, and he didn't doesn't say it till the last fifteen minutes of the movie. The uh, I was going to say the poster too looks very similar to Forbidden Planet, and is very misleading. Oh, yeah, that was a standard poster <laughs> trope of the fifties for many yeah. hard sci-fi movies. Was always show them carrying a sexy, unconscious blonde. <laughs> it's just funny today because it's like you know then you watch the movie and you're like well this is a different movie right. like yeah. <laughs> from what this but you're right that was like something that they had they did back then to to get butts and seats, and seats and yeah that uh that uh yeah that's that's not quite uh truth in advertising uh <laughs> yeah for, a for either film Although I did get Leslie Nielsen to sign my poster of Forbidden Planet. I have a a poster signed by Leslie Nielsen. That's in, really cool. I love that. 2002. <laughs> that was the second awesome. time I met him. Uh, hmm. the, I would have loved to have met uh, Patricia Neal or, you know, any of those folks. But uh, uh, they all died before that could happen. Oh, so, dang. Yeah, everybody, yeah, yeah, wait till the Alamo, wait till the Alamo or one of the other theater chains that, and I hope they go back to doing retro movie series. Uh, yeah, been, I agree. I don't feel like there's more money in that, really. 
You know, it's, it, it feels like, at least for me, maybe I'm speaking from personal experience, but I'm, I'm like more likely to go if it's a movie that I really like that I just haven't seen in theaters yet than I am to even see new ones. A lot of times new ones, I'm like, oh, I'll just wait till it hits digital. You know, I'll, I'll as I've said before, any classic film, if you can see it in a theater, see it that way. Don't watch it on TV. Agreed. Not Agreed. even if you've got a big 40-inch TV in your house, still see it in a theater. On a big yeah, it's not the same. You need the audience. You need the right. experience of going in. Of course, we want to stress safely, yeah. so hopefully in the near and future. I hope but, that we get yeah. back to where we can do that again, you know. Uh, yeah. The second to last film I saw at Alamo before the shutdown was *The Adventures of Robin Hood*, starring Olivia. Oh, really? Hamlet. Oh, I feel like I saw that on your yeah, Facebook. On, yeah, on their big screen and, and on their number six screen. Oh God, was it awesome! I just uh, my girlfriend never seen it, and uh, she'd never seen an Errol Flynn movie, and it was just awesome. She was just breathtakingly beautiful. On a big screen. Yeah. I'm glad. And, you know, you just can't get that on TV. So I agree. I agree with you. Well, Gordon, this brings me to my last couple of questions for you. Okay. Uh, right. Number one, uh, if you could summarize, why do you think you've seen this movie so many times? Uh, all great films just hold up with each viewing, and yep. you see something new in it every time. Yeah. I you agree. See something you. new in it you've never seen before. And now I have to see it again because I just read something that's in an end joke that's in Day of the Earth Stood Still. I don't remember ever seeing before. Movie nerds will get this, but in um, uh, Hugh Marlowe's office on a list of names on the wall is the name Richard Carlson. Richard Carlson was a, another actor in the 50s who was a hero in many sci fi movies. Oh, cool. Like Creature from the Black Lagoon. And he and Hugh Marlowe were constantly getting confused with each other because they looked a lot alike. <laughs> that's that's a really good Easter egg. I love that. And, you know, and seeing a movie, I like to see them about every five years when I can. Mm. And wait till it's just starting to fade from my memory a bit and then see it again. Yeah. I mean, every time I see Citizen Kane, I see something I never saw before. Oh, really. for sure. It's a masterpiece. You just look at every every inch of the screen and you go, Oh God, I never saw that before. There's the snow globe way earlier in the film than you think it is. Yeah. And, and there's where it comes from. And uh, you either, either you see something new in it or whatever decade you see it in, it has a different meaning. It has a different interpretation. Mm -hmm. It has, boy, that says something to the, to the age I'm living in right now. Yeah. You either say that or you say, what that movie was saying in, in 60 years ago has never gone away. Right. It's still here. Right. That's a you theme know, that comes up on the show a lot about that, I think. You know, war between nations, xenophobia, racism. Yeah. Uh, why we can't, you know, why our, our, our groups and our nations and our countries on this planet can't live together, you know? Yeah. Uh, you see something new every time. You see... You you remember how you felt the first time you see it, just like I did, sit, sitting in my my grandmother's farmhouse on her carpet, uh, the old farmhouse I lived in for three years in Lubbock in the early '60s, watching it on her ancient black and white TV <laughs> for the first <laughs> time. Uh, 
watching the day of the earth stood still on the NBC Saturday night movies. And boy, memories, uh, it brings back. So, you know, ET is like that to me. Annie Hall's another movie like that. It really, it really says something different to you every decade you see it in. Really, Yeah. And yeah. I, I've had a few more decades to see it in than you have. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just a movie uh, never gets old. Yeah. yeah. It can't be said of every single movie. Some of them do get old. <laughs> For sure. Even, even favorites, you go, well, it's lost a bit. Uh, that one hasn't lost much. I mean, a little Dalier stood still, a little naivete compared to modern stuff, some bud- limitations of budgets, a budget you see now, limitations of uh some early fifties naivete, but the the thought and the power and the feeling behind it is still there. I agree. Yeah. I think, you know, that's the hallmark of a good film, right? Um, I think sometimes when people are scared to dip their toe into classic cinema, they're afraid that these stories aren't going to resonate with them today. And I would say the good ones do, you know, so give them a shot for sure. They're they're like old friends to me. You see them that you see every five years or so. I love that. I love that analogy of like every five years. I, I think I'm yeah. going to put that into practice. I like that. About every, yeah, about every five or so years. Yeah. Uh, the ones on my all time list, I'll I'll go see again. Five six years maybe. So yeah. what I was going to say too. What is your elevator pitch for this movie? Like what what would you say to get someone interested in seeing it? Um. Hey, you want to see the. Um, Hmm. It's a little harder than others to tell people why they should see it, but I would say, hey, do you want to see where the whole concept of um, a powerful benevolent alien comes from when it was first time done for an adult audience? And in a, with music that you won't believe that you've been hearing and didn't realize for decades, that's not the best thing to say. Done in a really <laughs> beautiful and memorable way. I mean, believe me, 92 minutes of something that's uh, a little different than what you've been watching. Watch it on your uh, uh, watch it on your quarantine and you'll realize how you've seen the ideas and the themes and heard the music before. I agree. You can see everything that it influenced going forward. And it's classic sci-fi. Your favorite word or classic yeah, science fiction, word. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's a classic for a reason and you can uh, go back and revisit this and um, you definitely need to at least see it. If you love sci-fi now, you got to see where it started, you know? So this is a really good one to check out for sure. You, you, you should. And uh, cause this is one of, this is the template. This is the archetype. You've been mm-hmm. seeing variations on this for decades. Agreed. Yeah, see this and see um, see Howard Hawks' The Thing, also one of the most paraphrased movies of all time. Uh, the the origin of the alien monster movie. Nice. I will have to check that out. Yeah, <laughs> I have not months, seen it. Six months before, before Day the Earth Stood Still. So, uh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm done. <laughs> You're good. So, Gordon, thank you so much for coming on. And before you go, where can people find you? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, my website, gordonksmith.com. I have a Facebook page. Um, 
I'm waiting for the film festivals to get started up again. Oh, for sure. I know. That's got to be so tough. Yeah. That cut out a large part of my business when they shut down or went online. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am going to be editing some material for the Women Texas Festival, which will be online. I've been teaching. Uh, uh, Every once in a while, I do some teaching. I finished uh, teaching a semester at Collin College uh, in May. Might be back in the fall. We're still working on that. Right. Everything's so up in the air right now. Yeah. Check out my website. We'll uh, do. And it'll be in the show notes, too, so people can go check that out. All right. Very cool. I'll um, I'll send you the picture of me and Robert Wise. Yes, please do. I love that. I, I need to get that started again. When I first started the show, like everybody, I would ask them to send me all their swag and everything. I need to get better about that. So definitely send me that picture. Um, Gordon, thank you so much for coming on. You definitely have to think about your next episode because obviously it's a blast every time you're on and really appreciate having you. All right, Lisa. Thanks. Uh, Enjoyed enjoyed the Roma talk last week too. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 Gordon uh, tuned in for our cinema conversations as well. And yeah, that was super fun. I love those. Those are super fun to do. Sure is. So, um, Hope they're doing another one this week, I hope. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Thank you so much, Lisa. I really enjoy doing these, too. Thanks.